Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host. Each week, we look at a new book in the public policy sphere and discuss its implications for American policymakers. This week, we are lucky to have Roel Mark Gorecht, author of The Wave, Man, God, and the Ballot Box in the Middle East. Gorecht is a former CIA agent who was posted to the Middle East and also a scholar who has studied medieval Islamic history. He discusses his thoughts about democracy in the Middle East, and tells us why, perhaps, American policymakers need to embrace democracy in the Middle East, even if it makes us uncomfortable in many instances. Hello. We have Rural Mark Gorecht on the line to talk about his new book, The Wave, Man, God, and the Ballot Box in the Middle East. Rural, how are you? Just fine. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you came to write this book. Well, I'm a uh, senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, which is a post-9-11 think tank. It almost exclusively deals with the Middle East uh, uh, and terrorism. And uh, I had actually been uh, uh, in conversation with Fuad Ajami at at Johns Hopkins, who was an old friend and, and teacher. And Fuad had asked me whether I had a book in mind. And I actually did have one in mind. I had wanted to write a sequel uh, to my uh, little book, The Islamic Paradox, uh, for quite some time. I think Islamic Paradox came out in 2004, and I had wanted to update it. And this gave me the opportunity to move forward uh, on that idea. Well, can we go back a little bit in time in your background that led to you becoming a senior fellow at the foundation and also to having someone as esteemed as Fuad Ajami ask you to write a book? Oh, well, I mean, I had, uh, I mean, if you take it back into ancient history, uh, I had uh, one time uh, wanted to be a professor until I actually started to do that. And uh, I was studying uh, medieval Islamic history, both here and 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 in and, and Britain. And uh, when I was at Princeton, uh, doing it somewhat more seriously, I decided that uh, I, I actually didn't want to make a career uh, in a library, and I wanted to uh, go elsewhere, and that elsewhere was the CIA. I was quite fortunate in that uh, uh, many, uh, not many, but the critical professors I, I, I had actually had all been former intelligence officers. So they both uh, encouraged and more importantly discouraged me from doing so. But uh, I, nevertheless, being young and stupid, I, I joined the agency. And uh, I'd also been living in the Middle East before, and I was fortunate enough to more or less direct uh, my own career. And I was able to work on that which I wanted to work on the most, which was Iran. And the Middle East is a secondary issue, but mainly Iran. And so I spent a decade doing so. And then when I realized that uh, 
being in the clandestine service really wasn't uh, an adult profession. Uh, I left and uh, started to write, uh, and I joined uh, AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, in 2001. I was essentially their 9-11 hire. And before that, I'd been with the project for the New American Century. And then uh, in 2008, I left AI. I was overseas, and I joined uh, FDD. I hope your comment about the adult profession does not mean that the CIA is filled with children or juveniles. No, but uh, well, juveniles, that's, that's a more debatable proposition, at least in the clandestine service. Uh, it's you know i've written about it extensively it's 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 a long subject i have to confess i've actually become somewhat bored with it uh you know the agency is a deeply troubled institution it's been that way for a very long time and uh it it and and it is often a not particularly serious organization particularly uh, the clandestine service uh, before we get in, into your book, are there any particular things that you would suggest listeners read if they want to hear more about your experiences with the agency? Well, I did one book specifically on uh, that and uh, on a voyage I took to Iran called Know Thine Enemy. Um, I, it was published with Farah Strauss Giroux. I, I think it's around here somewhere. It, it was not exactly a bestseller, but I'm, I'm still quite proud of the work. Okay, great. Well, moving on to this book, you mentioned Fuad Ajami. The forward by Fuad Ajami mentions Samuel Huntington. There's also Professor Lewis in there, really some of the giants in the field. And uh, it, it seems like you uh, had a homage to Huntington in the title, mentioning the third wave, referring to his famous book about the wave, um, that, that um, you were inspired by Professor Lewis. And then, you get, again, you got a forward by a jummy. I mean, how do you know these giants, and how do you uh, think you can kind of compare to them? Do you, are you kind of following in their footsteps? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't think anyone could follow in Bernard Lewis's footsteps. I mean, I know uh, only knew Huntington from a distance. Uh, Bernard is a is a close friend, and he was uh, one of you know my influential teachers. And uh, um, he's always a joy to behold. Uh, he's uh, certainly one of the greatest scholars uh, of the 20th century, and uh, he allows you to. Uh, always know uh, what a first-class mind is and why you don't have one, <laughs> but he does. So uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, Bernard is is that rare gift in that he's a phenomenal scholar, but he's also uh, well-traveled, he's down-to-earth, he's done and been a lot of things, and uh, that is uh, a, a rare combination. I've been very fortunate to, to know him. Great. Well, if I could try and summarize the book. Uh, it seems to me that your key idea is that democracy in the Middle East is a durable and aggressive idea. The green movement in Iran, for example, you said is the real thing. It's not a kind of some kind of astroturf movement. It's real. And that Arab intellectuals have sort of fallen down on the job in terms of expressing what the, their people are seeking and that it's up to somebody else to recognize the importance of this movement and then you look at various aspects of the Middle East, you look at the Iranians, the Arabs, the Turks and, and then finally uh, the Americans and American policy. Uh, w would you say that's kind of a fair summary and would you like to elaborate at all? No, I think, I think that's a fair summary. I mean, I think the, 
the Arabs are, are catching up, or, or they've caught up, uh, you know, quite quickly uh, with the Great Arab Revolt. I mean, I wrote uh, uh, the wave uh, just before the Great Arab Revolt happened, um, and afterward, where we take it into consideration. So, I mean, intellectually, the Iranians uh, have been, still are. Uh, way ahead of the Arab world in trying to deal with the issue of democracy, trying to deal with the issue of where Islam fits uh, in, uh, in, 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 in politically. Uh, they alone had an Islamic revolution. They alone have had to deal with really the implosion of that revolution. The Most of the great intellectuals uh, of the Green Movement, both on the lay and secular on the secular and, and religious sides were one time pro-revolution. And so they have had to deal with the, the great disappointment that has come as that revolution has more or less uh, disappointed almost everyone. Um, so that has caused a, just a seriousness that you have not uh, really seen in the Arab world and that we may now see with the successful demonstrations, at least in Tunisia and Egypt, and uh, we'll see where it goes. I suspect uh, Tunisia and Egypt will not be the end of that story, and that uh, the tumult uh, will continue. Uh, we'll see whether, it, uh, whether the forces of, of democracy win or the forces of reaction. Uh, I think that is obviously still up in the air. But, uh, you know, the Arabs really haven't had the chance to practice haven't had the opportunities. The Iranians have had, in a sense, uh, what we might say, three revolutions in a hundred years. Uh, they had the 1905, 1906, 1911 constitutional revolution. It wasn't really a revolution, but it uh, certainly began the path of taking them down to think about uh, uh, where where personal political responsibilities lie the role of the individual, the role of the clergy, the role of God uh, in, in politics. The Islamic Revolution very much was a revolution. And uh, the, the tumult that we saw in 2009 in the, 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 the rise of the Green Movement, which really started, I, I would argue, right after the death of Khomeini in 1989, is really the third intellectual revolution where uh, the individuals who grew up with the Islamic Republic have now evolved beyond the Islamic Republic, and they are explicitly trying to establish a, a, a democratic order. And it is, at least by Middle Eastern standards, uh, uh, a pretty liberal order. Uh, that's something else. The the Arabs, I think, intellectually are lagging behind, though they've had more political success, at least in Tunisia and in Egypt, uh, trying to actually work their way through this, you know, complex relationship between man and the holy law, uh, what is a good Muslim and a democratic polity. Uh, these are fairly complicated issues, and they're, they're having to deal with them now uh, quickly, and we'll see how profoundly. One thing you said in the book that I thought was very interesting is you said you have to untangle, or the Iranians have to untangle Shariati and Khomeini. Can you talk a little bit about who those individuals were and what you meant by it? Well, it, it, I mean, um, 
uh, Ali Shariati was probably the most important intellectual to the uh, triumph uh, of the Islamic Revolution, even though he died before the revolution happened. Uh, he really made the idea of an Islamic Revolution palatable uh, to lay intellectuals. Uh, he redefined what it was to be a Shiite. Uh, he kind of came up with the idea, idea of red Shiism, black Shiism, red Shiism being good, you know, Marxist Shiism, black Shiism being reactionary Shiism, passive Shiism, which is bad. Uh, so he really set the stage for the Islamic revolution, which we all have to remember was a Marxist Islamist, uh, revolution. Uh, Khomeini set the stage religiously uh, of the of the union of, of church and state uh, comprehensively, profoundly, in a way that uh, even traditional Islamic society hadn't really known. And so what is happening now is that people are evolving beyond them, the, the, uh, disentangling church and state. They're disentangling Marxism and Islam. Uh, and they're, you know, becoming much more politically mature about who's responsible for the success and failure uh, of their dreams. And uh, they're, unlike many in the Middle East, the, uh, the really cutting edge of the Green Movement, certainly the intellectuals of the Green Movement, put responsibility, especially for failure, on their own shoulders. They don't blame the Americans. They don't blame the Brits. They don't blame the Russians. They blame themselves. Uh, and that's enormously healthy. And it's, it's an essential ingredient, obviously, in creating a democratic polity. And it's a central ingredient, a, a sort of recreating a new ethical system, a new mores that make sense, mores that would, uh, you know, not allow, for example, jihadism. and would not allow the type of extreme behavior that we have grown accustomed in the Islamic Republic. You know, one thing that was somewhat surprising to me was when I read your chapter on the Iranians that you were relatively optimistic about Iran, and that seems to correspond with what you're saying here. What's your long-term view or maybe medium-term view for the prognosis for what's going to happen in Iran? Well, I, I, I mean, it's difficult to say if, for example, uh, Bashar al-Assad, were to fall in Syria, I think the repercussions in Iran would be pretty profound. I don't think the the Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Supreme Leader and his minions, get to uh, get to win this one. I, I think uh, eventually Iranian society, uh, the Iranian elite, is, is going to defeat them. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think a a movement that that produces children basically in rebellion. Uh, gets to survive. Now, the Islamic Republic, the, the Khamenei and the Guard Corps have been successful in uh, using force to put down the rebellion that started in June of 2009. And certainly the Green Movement was poorly led at that time, and that, you know, the mayor of Tehran, Qalibaf, estimated there were being between two and three million people out in the streets. Uh, after the fraudulent elections in the summer of 2009, uh, if those people had been far greater than what we saw in Cairo, for example, if those people had been more 
proper, they've been better directed, uh, I think it's uh, quite likely the Republic uh, would have fallen then. So the, the, the long term, the midterm in Iran, I think, looks pretty good. Um, the short term, uh, you know, when hard power hits soft power, hard power wins. That's always true. Uh, we will not see a change in Iran until you see the Guard Corps, the Revolutionary Guard Corps crack. And I don't think that's going to happen until we see significant demonstrations again on the streets and people have to make the great choice. The security services have to make the choice. Are they going to shoot their fellow citizens in cold blood? Um, and I, again, I think it's a foregone conclusion we're going to see those demonstrations. I mean, Iran really is and has been for some time a volcano. Uh, and it's only a matter of time before that volcano erupts again. One other thing that might have helped send the Iranians over the top in terms of succeeding with their democratic revolution had been perhaps if Barack Obama had stood up for them instead of kind of standing back and saying, well, do what you want to do. Oh, I don't think President Obama probably would have made a great difference internally. He certainly uh, didn't inspire uh, folks on the ground. I mean, when they first started rolling, they actually played with the Persian rendition of his name, which is Ubalmah, which means uh, more or less he is with us. And uh, within a fairly short period of time, that became, you know, Ubalmah niche. He's not. So uh, I, I think the president made a serious mistake. I, I don't know what that mistake would have meant internally. Uh, I would like to, re you know, wind history back and have him do it differently and see if anything uh, might have come of it. But uh, I, I probably wouldn't blame him for the, the failure of the Green Movement. I'm not sure I'm blaming him either. I don't think I'm blaming him, but I'm saying in the factors you mentioned that could have helped push the Green move, Movement forward, I thought that might have been one of them. You mentioned something... It, it would have been good. if he, it, it, would, it would have been better if he'd rhetorically used that bully pulpit uh, to, to, to defend them. I, I, that... It, it might have helped. You mentioned earlier if Assad were to fall in Syria, that that would have serious and significant repercussions for the Iranian regime. Can you kind of explain the trim, triple pin cushion shot that's going on over there? Well, I mean, uh, we'll have to see in the, in the next uh, week, 10 days max, uh, whether uh, Assad is able to shut down uh, the rebellion, which is uh, mostly in the Sunni areas. Uh, of Syria, not exclusively, but mostly, uh, if he's able to continue to use his uh, primarily Alawi shock troops to crush it, uh, then he'll probably survive at least for uh, in the in the short term. Uh, however, if he were to go down, I mean, he is uh, Iran's only Arab ally. Uh, he is essential in maintaining the supply lines to to the Hezbollah in Lebanon which uh, really are they're, they're Iran's only religious child in the Arab world. Uh, the collapse of that regime of the Alawi, who are Shiite schismatics, who for that reason actually uh, are, I think, an, uh, permanently aligned with the Islamic Republic. Uh, um, that if they were to, if the uh, Alawi regime were to go down, I, I think it would send a very powerful signal, a big jolt back to Tehran. 
that uh, one, they've lost their only Arab ally, and two, the Hezbollah would have to hunker down. Uh, they could not afford, for example, to militarily engage the Israelis again, or they'd simply run out of weaponry, and their control over the Shia in Lebanon would be in question. So all of these things uh, would have a certain shock effect. And it could be quite substantial inside of Iran. Uh, remember when the Tahrir Square demonstrations uh, struck in Cairo, uh, the the green movement for a brief period of time was emboldened again, and people started hitting the streets in the thousands. Uh, I would argue that Syria is actually much more important for the internal Iranian chemistry. So uh, if Assad were to go down... It, it might have a substantial repercussion in Iran. That seems like a good transition to move to the second part of the book after the Iranians who talk about the Arabs. And one thing you talk about is Al Jazeera as kind of a, a an indicator for what the mood is in the Arab world. You said it really captures Arab sem- sentiment, which is anti-autonomy or anti-autonomous governments and autocracies, but also very critical of Israel and very critical of the United States, although you say fascinated with both. Can you talk a little bit about Al Jazeera's role in general and with respect to the nascent revolutions we're seeing these days? Yeah, I mean, uh, Al Jazeera is is an interesting point on the map. Uh, uh, I think to put it simply and perhaps best, Al Jazeera, for the longest period of time, has been the virtual democracy uh, where the Arabs couldn't have a real one. And even though Al Jazeera shows in in vivid color all of the worst intellectual diseases that the Arab world has, and Lord knows it has many, and all the biases and prejudices and uh, and bigotries, it's all out there for for you to see. Uh, it is a jousting society. I mean, you do see people on Al Jazeera, fundamentalist, pan-Arabist and since Iraq, and now since Tunisia and, and, and Egypt, you also see Democrats arguing with each other, yelling at each other. Uh, this has been very productive and uh, galvanizing in the Middle East. So, even though Al Jazeera on any given day, on any given program, can say things that can make your tummy turn, particularly the Arabic service, uh, its its role um, in the in the Arab world uh, has been formative, and I would say revolutionary. And do you think positive in general, even despite some of the things that would make one's yeah. tummy turn? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it has had a positive role. I mean, it has it has helped uh, in its own way uh, um, people of the region to become more confident in themselves. It has spread the notion of individualism. It has allowed direct, you know, debate. It may not be the most healthy debate at times uh, uh, between. The various contending forces in the in the region, uh, so that that uh, was a that was a plus. Uh, I mean, we'll see how Al Jazeera evolves uh, if the trend, democratic trend in the Arab world grows and and and, and anchors itself. Uh, then you. may see Al Jazeera have a bit more trouble because, after all, it is based in, in Qatar. Uh, and it is funded by a, a royal family, 
uh, that probably would take a very dim view of any type of representative breaking out and cutoff. Uh, and if the shakedowns of the Gulf were to be challenged by these democratic movements, and I think it's fair to say that, that Al Jazeera hasn't probably performed as admirably in covering Bahrain as it did in covering Egypt, that uh, then it will get more interesting because then it will get closer to home. With respect to the Arabs, it seems to me what you're saying is that democracy would be quite dicey, but overall it's probably necessary and that the Westerners need to recognize there'll be problems, but proceed. Well, I think in the short term, it's inevitable. Uh, you know, we do not know whether democracy is going to uh, succeed in the Arab world, but the notion that regimes like Ben Ali's in Tunisia, Mubarak's, were going to last and that you had an option that, you know, uh, was, was, I think, was surreal. Uh, um, so, so, you know, we'll have to see whether these police states can be uh, removed. We'll have to see whether they can evolve. Uh, the, particularly in Egypt, the military is a powerful institution, the most powerful institution in the country by far. So we'll have to see whether it actually does give way. But uh, if it does give way, then uh, uh, the evolution uh, politically has to be good for them. I mean, it, you, you, certainly what we had before was profoundly unhealthy. Uh, in the case of Egypt, uh, Egypt was literally falling apart uh, morally. Uh, I mean, it, was, it had become under Mubarak uh, the slickest. Uh, producer of anti-Semitism and the Arab world, I think, even more influential than Saudi Arabia, which tells you something. Uh, it had it was a very internally corrosive society uh, where, you know, even members of the elite uh, were beginning to veil themselves. I mean, that tells you something that the secular order of the elite was seen as being so dirty and corrupt that uh, uh, the wealthy daughters of, of Cairo uh, and Alexandria were actually beginning to veil themselves. So, you know that, that this that you now have a situation where uh, people can more openly express their views and they can argue and they can fight it out. Where the Muslim Brotherhood uh, can make its claim upon the souls of the Egyptians and let's see whether they win or not. Uh, you know this is the type of organic political growth that got shut down in the Middle East. Uh, after World War II with the rise of, of, of dictatorships. It was the hope uh, of, of many in the West that, you know, the dictatorships in the Arab world would e evolve essentially like Ataturk and Inonu's authoritarian systems in Turkey. And that is that they gradually lead to more liberal societies uh, that had more liberal ethics uh, and that uh, democracy would thereby be, you know, more to our liking uh, when it finally started to hit liberals very hard. I mean, Mubarak, you know, slamming, slamming I'm a nur and the types like him uh, was actually you know, part of the system that uh, so it's not surprising that uh, in a place like Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood would grow so much 
because one, Egypt is a religious society, and two, there were so few other alternatives to express your discontent and your opposition uh, to the regime. In, in your book, which, as you say, was written before the current wave of revolutions, uh, you are pretty critical of Mubarak, and you think he's basically uh, unsustainable, and, and obviously you, you were right. What is going on now in Egypt, now that they're no longer in the headlines every day? Has the, the revolution been successful in that it got rid of Mubarak, but is it all successful in coming closer to a democratic society, a free society, a society that could potentially be more friendly to the West? don't think uh, that uh, Egypt, uh, if it evolves democratically, will be friendlier to the West, not in the short term. I would expect the opposite to happen. Now, I don't think that, that uh, we'll know much about Egypt until you actually see elections happen. That... that uh, uh, I would dis disagree strongly with those who suggest that elections have to somehow be at the end of this democratic process, that whatever the West did from Runnymede up until Thomas Jefferson, you know, the, the Egyptians have to do too, and they don't really shouldn't vote until they, you know, have that all happen. I, I just don't find that terribly credible, credible historically, and it's certainly not credible politically. As my good friend Olivier Hua once quipped, uh, you know, if you had to wait for France, uh, to be democratic before holding elections, France would still be a monarchy. Uh, you know, the, the, the elections are what build democratic institutions. They are the most powerful force. So we're going to have to see uh, what happens, or we appear to be on the path to elections in the September, or at least fall for parliament, and then we have elections for the presidents uh, a, bit, a bit beyond that. But we'll have to see how they, how they go. We'll have to see how, what influence the military has in this process. And then I think we can make a better judgment call on whether the Egyptian parliament is real, has force, and can change Egyptian society. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago Turkey, and it seems to me that the essence of your chapter on Turkey is this notion that Turkey is really too Western to go back, even with some backsliding or retreats in certain areas or some threats from Islamist movements that the Turkish men love their Rocky too much and are not uh, likely to move towards a, a fully Islamist society. Does the current situation in terms of the revolutions roiling in, in the Middle East change your assessment or, or can you elaborate on, on what's no. going on there? No, it actually makes it more, I think it makes it more persuasive. I mean, if you look at Prime Minister Erdogan, who's hardly a pillar of virtue, uh, and who has used his office to uh, abuse uh, a lot of people, particularly those that he, he deemed to be he deems to be threats. Uh, I mean, Erdogan and uh, President Gul uh, have both made statements on Syria uh, that are pretty clearly in favor of democratic growth in Syria, and this is uh, noteworthy in the case of Erdogan because Erdogan. You know, might be pushing it a bit. Uh, it seems to have been, uh, at least until the revolt in Syria, on extremely good and, if not a, a personal, warmly personal relations with 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 Bashar al-Assad. So I don't know if I go so far as to call him a friend of Erdogan, but it's pretty blood close. So that Erdogan and and Gul went in this direction, I think, shows that the democratic ethic does mean something in Turkey. 
and that uh, I don't think most Turks uh, were terribly pleased and approving of Assad uh, taking tanks and snipers uh, to his own citizenry. And that also is why the, the uh, Erdogan called a, a meeting uh, in, in Turkey of, uh, of Syrians and, and allowed the you know, Syrian Muslim Brotherhood to actually pop up. Not that the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood is actually uh, that strong in, in, in Syria. But, uh, no, I, I think, you know, democracy does matter. And even in a place like Turkey where the democracy is not as liberal as we would want and where one can have severe doubts about the uh, uh, actions of uh, many actions of the ruling Justice and Development Party, the AKP, uh, that it is still a democratic society. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, in this sense, uh, Ataturk, uh, dream, I think, is pretty well rooted, and it would be very hard, I think, for the AKP, assuming they're inclined, to gut uh, a, a democracy in in Turkey and establish essentially a one-party state. I think the possibility of the AKP making a mistake and being held politically accountable for that um, a mistake is pretty powerful, and that uh, though I expect them to do well in coming elections. Uh, I don't expect them to have dictatorial control over this, over Turkish society. You know, one country where there is not dictatorial control over the government is America. And your last section of the book is about America and how America should handle what's going on in the Middle East now. And one thing that really struck me about it is how uncomfortable various aspects of American society would be with what the manifestations of Arab democracy would be. You mentioned at one point that it's hard to imagine any Arab democracy signing a peace treaty with Israel. How do you think Americans will react to democratic nations that, I guess, in some ways adhere to our notion of democratically elected people, but at the other side say things that, uh, what would you say before, make our tummy hurt? Yeah, I think it's going to be fairly traumatic. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I mean, you know, you might call them the unholy trinity of democratic expansion in the Arab world. It's likely to be anti-Americanism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism. So uh, I don't think that's a permanent condition, but uh, we are likely to see that um, just about everywhere. So it, this is going to be one hell of a ride. Uh, now, again, I think it's important to note that uh, down this road, uh, actually, we, we act we'll find political responsibility. Down this road, we find the great debates uh, that are necessary to heal uh, Arab societies. Uh, down this road, you, you will have uh, real ethical jousting matches uh, amongst fundamentalists, between fundamentalists and liberals. Uh, we will have debates about where women uh, should be in Muslim society. And I would argue that uh, the probably the most powerful progressive force in Muslim society will be the female vote. Uh, you see that clearly in Iran, where, where if women had actually had the right to have their votes reified in political office, uh, the Islamic Republic, as we have known and feared it, I think, would have been over on May 23rd, 1997. Uh, when Mohammed Khatami won the presidency, and he only won that presidency because of the female vote. Uh, I, the same is likely to happen in the Arab world. Uh, it, it won't happen overnight. I, I think the 
voting differences between men and women are unlikely, say, in Egypt to be all that different in the beginning, and that faithful Egyptian women will be likely to vote for the Muslim Brotherhood. However, uh, you know, you can only wrap, wrap yourself in the Quran and the Sharia and Islamic rhetoric for so long, as was the case in Iran. Uh, in, in a democratic society, uh, uh, which Iran wasn't really, even though it had elections, uh, if, the, if the press remains halfway free uh, in place like Egypt, then I would see these debates actually be much more powerful. Uh, um, and on the issue of Israel, if that tr treaty is maintained, and I, I don't know if it will be, but I, I'm certain the Muslim Brotherhood will try to, uh, they will have a vote on it. If they, do, if they get at least 25% in the parliament, and I suspect they will, then you will certainly see them go for annulation of that treaty. But if that treaty survives, uh, then that really means something. And that will be the first democratic Arab state that actually uh, votes for the treaty. Uh, and that's a hell of a lot more important than having the treaty essentially being the will and the expression of military autocracies. You know, usually the last question in this podcast is what policies would you pursue as a result of writing this book. And the truth is that your last chapter, your last section on on America uh, is really an answer to that question. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to what American policy should be given the roilings in the Middle East and also our discomfort with some of the sentiments expressed by the, the putative Democrats? Yeah, I mean, again, simply put, I think the, the United States should, should support democracy. I mean, that's what it does best in any case. And, you know, we've had in uh, the Middle East has really been the one place uh, of great exceptionalism. I mean, we could call it Islamic exceptionalism, where the attitudes that we have towards democracy and towards political liberty have taken a backseat to our concerns about stability. And we've largely do done that because, to be frank, uh, we don't trust Muslims voting. And I, I think we have to get over that. <laughs> and that uh, Muslims voting uh, may mean a, a lot of uh, views uh, gaining a voice that we find repugnant. But uh, again, the issue is not what we find repugnant. The issue is their internal debates. Uh, so you want them to see great debates about the United States. You want them to have debates about the nature of the United States. You want them to have debates about American foreign policy. You want them to have debates about Israel, about Jews in general. Uh, these are essential debates. Uh, and if you don't have them, again, you're going to have these stunted societies that uh, can't evolve. Uh, you'll have societies that produce jihadism, uh, which we will, what we have seen. Uh, and you'll essentially have malignant societies. Democracy isn't going to offer a quick solution to the uh, certainly the Arab world, the Middle East, many problems. Uh, these states are, are going to have profound problems, and democracy will have a great deal of difficulty dealing with them. But it does offer the, an alternative that gives some hope. And I think the United States should be pretty forceful in saying we support uh, democracies, we support elections. Uh, we shouldn't shy away from our own liberal values. 
and we should be quite forceful in expressing uh, what what we would like to see happen and that uh, what we personally believe in. We shouldn't hesitate, for example, to criticize Prime Minister Erdogan when he is attempting to crush uh, the Doan Media Group uh, in Turkey because it's the really the only free opposition media group. We shouldn't hesitate to attack him when he uses show trials to humble the Turkish military. Uh, and these show tiles, the Ergacon cases, are just outrageous. Uh, we've done a very poor job of that. We should use the bully pulpit uh, to, to criticize and to attack uh, those who are straying from what, the democratic path that we can admire most. But at the same time, we should make it clear that regardless of the troubles, regardless of our anxieties, that we want to see these societies politically evolve. And we want to see uh, democratic cultures uh, have a chance to get going. Uh, uh, I mean, it's a very easy call in the case of Iran, given the nature of the regime and how relatively liberal the green movement is. Uh, it's much more difficult, obviously, in places like Egypt, where you have the peace treaty, or in Bahrain, where we have the fifth fleet and we live in fear of the Iranian bogeyman coming out and dominating the Bahraini Shia, or in Iraq where, you know, you have many voices in the, in the United States that view the Iraqi Shia as puppets of the Iranian regime. I, I think that is historically nonsense, but uh, quite a large number of intelligent people will, will, make, that, will make that case. But uh, so we, we, this isn't rocket science. I mean, we just need to align ourselves. We need to align our pocketbooks. Uh, that we should not give aid to dictatorial regimes. We should make aid contingent upon democratic growth. Uh, and we should certainly not buttress militaries, which after all are the great plague of modern Middle, e Middle Eastern histories. It is the militarization of Islamic societies that has largely caused most of the problems we're looking at. So, uh, you know, Middle Eastern societies need to demilitarize, and we should certainly support that trend. It sounds as if in the Middle East, as in everywhere else, Churchill's dictum is correct. Democracy is the worst system, except for all the other ones. The book is The Wave, Man, God, and the Ballot Box in the Middle East. Royal Mark Recht, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Rule Mark Gorecht, author of The Wave, Man, God, and the Ballot Box in the Middle East. Gorecht talked about his new book and talked about his view that democracy, despite its difficulties and despite its challenges, may be the answer for how to proceed in a contentious area known as the Middle East. This is New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host. Join us next week as we discuss a new book in the important sphere of public policy. Thank you.